Welcome to Let's Talk Cancer. My name is Kerry Adams and I'm the CEO of the Union for International Cancer Control. Nearly half of all cancer deaths are caused by known preventable risk factors with smoking, alcohol consumption and high body mass index BMI among the top three. They are called preventable because unlike genetic predispositions, for instance, a person can lower their risk of cancer by limiting their exposure to these risk factors. However, it can often be difficult for individuals to make informed choices about their health, as there are strong commercial interests that influence the availability, accessibility, affordability and desirability of products such as tobacco and alcohol, which cause cancer. In our previous podcast, we looked at these commercial determinants of health and their relation to poor diet, physical activity and high body mass index. But in this podcast, we will discuss the similarities and differences between the tactics used by the tobacco and alcohol industries to market their products. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Adriana Blanco Marquizo, head of the Secretariat of the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, and Mike Dumbia, Director of Strategy and Advocacy at Movendi International, an organisation that calls for civil society to address alcohol as a serious obstacle to development. Welcome to you both. So while the, the health risk associated with tobacco are well known, alcohol, I feel, is often trivialised or normalised. So why do you think that is, Mike? You know, it's like this, we know, or the WHO uh, Special Agency for Cancer Research knows since 1988 that um, alcohol, the ethanol in beer, wine and liquor is carcinogenic. It's in the same group as tobacco and asbestos. Today, we know that alcohol causes seven types of cancer. Um, and we also know that already low doses of alcohol consumption increase the cancer risk. So the more human beings consume alcohol, the greater their risk becomes. And we know that there is no safe amount. There is no healthy, no, no safe threshold for, for alcohol consumption. The public, even, you know, doctors, journalists, they are not um, aware. They are not recognizing the cancer risk that comes from ethanol and beer, wine and liquor. I think that has to do with the activities of the alcohol industry. Very early on, they identified the threat to their profits, to their sales from public recognition that their products cause cancer. And so they invested in science uh, that shows that alcohol is healthy. For example, that uh, the myth that alcohol is good for the heart. We've known for many decades the, the issues that uh, tobacco use causes, not just for cancer, but for other non-communicable diseases. So despite all the health risks, you know, they, they, they continue to use the same tactics, or may, maybe they're slightly different tactics, Adriana, in terms of looking at the way in which they can um, continue to sell their products around the world, and in fact, sell their new products. So how would you summarize the current situation with regard to the tobacco industry, Adriana? The tobacco industry has been, let's say, the teacher for all other industries because we have seen that the strategies used by the tobacco industry are now used by other industries and not only alcohol, even other industries that produce, for example, sugary sweet beverages, that they are trying to get the same, the same kind of strategies. I think that one of the main strategies of, the, of these industries, they are not selling the product, they are selling a concept. 
Okay, so when you see an advertisement for um, tobacco, and, and I think the same thing is, is for alcohol, you don't see that they put a, a, a cigarette in front of you and they explain the quality of the tobacco. You will see that what they show you is nice people, young people, beautiful women, people with a very high standard life, with very nice places. So they are selling you a concept, the concept of happiness, of being, having friendly, being attractive. And that totally obscure the reality of the product that is exactly the opposite. Because when you are going to have, if you are a, a smoker, the majority of the probabilities you are going to, to have diseases, less money, so you are going to be in less affluent situation. Then they have another strategy that is, and, and Mike already mention part of that, that is trying to create their own science. You can say, okay, how can someone have their own science? Okay, because science is science. But well, unfortunately, there are scientists that they don't have problem to carry out biased research and then present sometime their result without making the people knowing that the research has been funded from an industry that have an economical interest in the results. The other thing that this industry does is to use front groups. We know that, that now there is a widespread knowledge of, of, of what are the real intentions of these uh, companies is that they try to be presented by someone else. So it's not me, the tobacco industry, that is so bad saying that, but it's this group of citizens that they're trying to, to see, to show you how good we are. And, and there is even a last one that we are seeing now that is the tobacco industry uh, acquiring pharmaceutical industry. And we see that in that way, they are again trying to buy a seat into the, let's say, the respectable group of public health where they try to portray themselves as part of the solution. How would you summarize the current situation with regard to e-cigarettes, vaping, things like that? Now is the, the, the tobacco industry trying to be part of the solution of the problem they created, okay? And, and that is really something that is uh, strange, you know, because you may say it's kind of you break someone's legs and then you sell the crutches to, to them to, to walk, you no? Know? So how are you creating a problem and then portraying yourself as the savior of the world? But come on, let's remember who created the problem in the first place. And of course, their solution is a solution that is a solution also for their own problem, that is the decrease of the profits because people is, is, is quitting smoking, no? Mike, I remember attending a congress some years ago where there was a wonderful presentation done by a researcher who had identified the, the crossover between the non-exec directors that were sitting on, on tobacco companies as advisors and were also sitting on alcohol companies as advisors. And, and, and in part, that sort of shows you know, the handshake between these, these two industries. What do you see from your perspective? Um, are there similarities and, and are there any differences? We always say that big tobacco and big alcohol are big buddies. Tobacco companies are major shareholders in alcohol companies. So they share the profit making interest from selling uh, these health harmful products. The new CEO of Diageo, Diageo is one of the biggest alcohol companies in the world. The new CEO hails from big tobacco. So they sit on each other's boards, uh, they use the same think tanks, uh, PR agencies, law firms, all these things 
it's just the same network. And Adriana made this important point of the front groups. It's increasingly the case that the alcohol companies also uh, want to be represented by front groups that disguise who this really is. And even here, even in the WHO context, when WHO was working on um, the Global Alcohol Action Plan, the alcohol industry deployed a network of think tanks that are connected to the tobacco industry. So even in political interference and lobbying, they work uh, together very much. Uh, we talk about the dubious five. So the alcohol industry is using five strategies to shape everything. Our values, our concepts of a good life, as Adriana explained, the tobacco industry is doing. For us, the dubious five are uh, lobbying, promotion, manipulation, deception and sabotage. Adriana, you mentioned earlier about uh, the industry, the um, tobacco industry moving into you know, the solutions for global health problems. Is this credible? Is this really credible? Do you, do you feel that, that, that this is just whitewashing their, their, their position with regard to the harm they cause to their, their classic tobacco products? Or do you think they actually believe it? I will think uh, about that saying that says, you fool me once, blame on you. You fool me twice, blame on me. And I think that the tobacco industry ha has fooled us not twice many, many times, because this, uh, let's say, a strategy of trying to portray products as uh, less harmful is not new. And the first attempt to do this was the filter. The filter, even though the name suggests that they filter things, at the end of the day, does not difference because a filter cigarette and unfiltered cigarette have more or less the same amount of health problems. It's really something that from the health perspective is not helping at all. So that was the first time that the tobacco industry said, okay, we are going to put this so you can smoke. You don't need to quit. You just use these ones that are less. The second intention was when they launched the concept of the mild and ultralight and, and this kind of concept. Even doctors were fooled with that. And in, in, in many countries, doctors say to the people, well, change to this. Okay. And what is the difference between, the, between a, a light product and a regular product? The number of holes in the filter. Okay. That is the only thing. So even though the tobacco industry knew at that moment that it will be a compensatory behavior in the smoker to try to get the same amount of nicotine because the smoker smokes because of the nicotine. So they need to have the doses, let's say. The profile of the lung cancer totally changed after the introduction of this of this product because people inhale more deeply, keep more the, the smoke in their lungs. This is not new. I will ask to anybody with, with some sense, how a company will produce a product that will kill the main income, that is the, the regular cigarettes. And also this product is not for general consumption. A according to them, it's just for those uh, smokers that wanted to, to quit and couldn't quit with something else or wanted to have a, a better option. Okay, So is signing the death certificate for themselves. So how can you really uh, trust this. The young uh, ethnic minorities, women, low-income communities, what are you seeing, uh, Mike, from an alcohol perspective? What, what, is the, what are the tactics of the alcohol industry at the moment? 
When it comes to young people, we always talk about training wheels for alcohol consumption. It's these ultra sweetened, uh, rather high alcoholic content uh, beverages, alcohol pops, uh, they are very often called. This is what the alcohol industry is doing because they know that from the beginning we have to acquire the taste for beer, wine and liquor. It's not pleasurable from the beginning. So they put lots of sugar, you know, they, they make alcohol taste like candy for kids. And for women, it's very similar to what Adriana has said. They put low calorie on it or gluten free vodka you can get. And so uh, women start thinking it's uh, healthy, of course, and they forget that the ethanol in beer, wine and liquor uh, is carcinogenic. Women have been um, using much less alcohol compared to men, but in countries like the UK, the US, women have caught up and we can see an epidemic of liver cirrhosis in young, well-educated women um, in Great Britain, for example. So we can see directly the effect of marketing. There are all these myths that mothers need to get through the day and Uh, use wine to, to cope with everything. And maybe the last thing that is really important to say, the alcohol industry is targeting low-income vulnerable communities. The alcohol industry is dependent on heavy alcohol users for major parts of their profits. Uh, you can uh, think of Hispanic communities or uh, black and brown communities in the United States. They have a much higher density of alcohol outlets because they cannot protect themselves against Uh, the alcohol industry. So in marketing, in availability, the alcohol industry really goes after these more vulnerable communities. There is a bit of a backlash in high-income countries. Um, and, you know, there is more understanding, more knowledge. But that doesn't seem to be start stopping the industry in terms of exploiting other markets around the world. So what are you seeing? We see, for example, that in high-income countries, in Western countries, young people want to stay alcohol-free longer so their debut is later um, and they have reduced consumption compared to previous um, generations if they begin alcohol consumption. And so, of course, the alcohol industry needs to do something with this. But in Western countries, um, the market has been saturated, which means that the alcohol industry has turned their attention to uh, low and middle income countries where the majority of the adult population um, is and has been alcohol abstainers. They are very often showing white people in Kenya or in Sri Lanka on these huge billboards, on, on these commercials with this super successful uh, lifestyle where uh, the alcohol product is the main facilitator of the social success, of the happiness, of the sexual appeal, all these things. So that is going on and that is, of course, a major risk for impeding development in those countries um, because uh, alcohol consumption is projected to rise and with it harms like cancer uh, and other problems. I know that in many parts of, for example, Africa, uh, the smoking rates, Adriana, for women are about 2%. They're very low. And of course, we applaud that. That's great news. But I can imagine there are some executives in the tobacco industry thinking, great, it's only 2%, a market opportunity. So what's the experience of, of you and your team in terms of observing the tobacco industry's tactics to you know, approach and to make the most of those vulnerable populations? When we say 2% of smoking is a good news, it's also a good news for them because that means that there is a niche of market that they will exploit. It's not by chance that women smoke more or less. 
is because there are strategies that are specifically focused on them. And if you see in more developed countries, the gap between the cigarette consumption in men and women is, is narrower. And in young people in some countries, we are seeing even girls smoking more than, than the boys. Okay, The same has been with the Afro-African-American communities in the United States and, and the use of menthol. They, there was much more advertisement in menthol with uh, black characters that it was for other products. So there is an intention, obviously. And again, I always think that when you have uh, this kind of advertisement of, of a standard on life and, and you are a poor person, no? what is the only thing that you can have like these people? You cannot buy the car. You cannot buy the house. Okay, You have, don't have this beautiful um, hair and thing because you cannot take care of yourself, but you can smoke. Or probably you can get a drink. That is the, the other thing. So... And then, obviously, the, the industries also provide cheap products, so you can, because there no one is coming to look which cigarette are you are you uh, smoking, is the high-end brand or the low-end. So they provide cheap ones, so you feel that at least you are sharing part of this glamorous life of the people with more means. And all that is pervasive, and it's not by chance, it's done by design by these industries. You're obviously the head of the Framework Convention for Tobacco Control Secretariat, which is the, the only international legal treaty you've got a framework which is a, a recommendations policy interventions for for governments to pursue to reduce the smoking levels in their own country so um, how effective is that i need to disclose my conflict of interest i think that the convention is really effective obviously i have been working my whole life on this we have 182 parties in this moment that represent more than 90 percent of the population of the work and for those parties these are mandates okay so they need to uh, abide from what is said, even though they need to domesticate, let's say, the convention because it's a framework. No, it tells more or less what needs to be done, but every country needs to put their own legislation in place for doing so. The convention was to set the best environment for people not using tobacco. And there is nothing in the convention that says we are going to ban smoking. Okay, This is not about banning smoking because we know that this is not a solution for an addictive behavior. Okay, The main um, part of the convention ensures that people is not smoking everywhere. So in a way, you are re reducing the possibilities of people smoking. That helps the smoker to quit but also help the non-smoker not to be exposed to secondhand smoke that we know is, is really a danger. Then you have the ban on advertising because it has been really proved that the advertising has an impact in the initiation of the tobacco. Then we have the health warning. And the health warning is something that is the minimum thing that any Ministry of Health can do, is to warn the people who use the product about the risk. So that is, is something that is very clear and it has not cost for the government because it's the tobacco industry who need to pay for, for the printing of that. Of course, we need also to raise taxes and that is the most effective individual measure because really affect the population that are more prone to, to consume, that is the young, the poor. The other thing is the uh, offering cessation. But we know the majority of the people just quit by themselves when these other measures in the environment are put into place. The main objective of the, of the treaty is to protect present and future generation of the devastating effect economic, social, health, environmental of the, the tobacco use. And, and the environment 
think that when you are thinking about tobacco is one of the of the contributors to all the environmental problems that we have, especially the plastic contamination. That is something like looks obscure, but we are seeing more and more than in our own bodies, we are incorporating the microplastic when we eat uh, the common food. So we need to be aware that every plastic we put outside is coming back to us, okay, in a in a in a microcosmic way, but with with effect in our health. Well, I guess we we we've always um, talked about the the risks and issues of uh, secondhand smoke, and uh, maybe we should start talking about the risks and issues of secondhand plastic. Secondhand plastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I recently attended another conference, and uh, colleagues from the World Health Organization did a incredibly incredible presentation about the environmental impacts of those very same filters that you mentioned that not only are they the most um, prevalent uh, waste on beaches around the world and in seas but also all of the chemicals which they are capturing from the, the the process of smoking are now infiltrating the soil and the sand and creating no really quite um terrible situation for many of us who don't smoke who like to go to a beach and just not see all the stubs from cigarettes. This year is the 20th anniversary of the adoption of the convention in the WHA, Workers' Assembly. But at the same time, we are 18 years into the implementation of the treaty and still there is a lot that needs to be done because the treaty is as strong as the implementation at country level. Just being party to the, to the treaty does not protect the public, the, the, the people. The only protection is passing the legislation. Adriana, there is a movement from many countries to get to like a generational end game where um, people born after a certain date cannot actually purchase or use tobacco. What are your thoughts on, on that approach um, that seems to be being reflected on by a number of countries at the moment? That is true. The, the countries that are more advanced in tobacco control and they have basically implemented many of the uh, actions in the FCTC already, they are looking for going beyond and trying to, well, begin to think about solving this problem from once. Just saying that for a future generation, it will not be any in any moment allow them to consume cigarettes. The parties to the convention are interested and in this new conference of the parties, we are going to have a discussion on the article 2.1 of the convention that is measures beyond what is, because we always said the FCTC is the floor, not the ceiling. So now the countries will begin to elaborate on what is the concept of the, how we can go beyond. I am looking forward to the outcome from that discussion because I think a lot of countries will be reflecting on, you know, how it's been implemented and the, the legal challenges that they face in, in getting it through. Mike, you don't have a FCTC for alcohol, but what do you have in terms of you no know, getting commitments from countries around the world to address alcohol in a similar way as potentially we have through the FCTC and tobacco? As you said, Kerry, we don't have a framework convention on alcohol control. I would say we have momentum towards uh, something similar. Uh, many countries are talking about a global binding treaty. I think exactly because they're experiencing the benefits of the FCTC. We have um, the global alcohol strategy from 2010. That is the foundation for alcohol being included in the sustainable development goals and in the uh, NCD's global action plan. So we have the alcohol policy best buys. For us, it's taxation, advertising ban, 
and um, common sense limits on alcohol availability. So we have also increasing knowledge about the return on investment uh, from these alcohol policy best buys. Governments uh, have now clearly said that action on alcohol as a public health priority needs to be accelerated. They want more support from WHO for country work, for country impact. So I think we have things in place that alcohol will also be more often on the agenda of the WHO governing bodies. There are incredible success stories uh, in alcohol policy implementation, Carrie. I think all this will inspire more and more action uh, at the country level. What can we do to support the great work that you're doing, Mike, and the great work that you're doing, Adrian? What, 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 what is your call out to the, the cancer community? If someone who is listening to us is uh, in a position of, of taking decisions in the country, of course, what they need is to really try to strengthen the implementation of the WHOFCTC because the WHOFCTC is science-based. Everything that is in the FCTC, there is no doubt about the effectiveness of that, uh, of that measure. From the common people, I will say, okay, hold your governments accountable, okay? And request your right to not to be exposed, for example, your right of having smoke-free environments in public places and workplaces, your right of your kids not being bombarded by marketing of, of this uh, industry, your right if you are a smoker to have some help to, to quit smoking. So I think that these are rights of the population based on the fact that this is to ensure the higher level of, of quality of life for people. Mike, um, what about yourself? What can the cancer community do for you and your, your great organization? Awareness raising um, about the link between alcohol and cancer that is very important and looking for the possibility of local partnerships. I think secondly, carry support for alcohol policy solutions. It's amazing how effective raising alcohol taxes is for preventing and reducing the cancer burden in a country. So alcohol policy is a really good catalyst for cancer prevention. So, you know, identifying corporate social responsibility, deployments of the alcohol industry in local communities, exposing the alcohol industry and protecting cancer prevention, cancer control activities from co-option by the alcohol industry is really important at the local level. Sometimes that means to ditch funding. Um, I think that's a reality that we, we just face in different countries. And last but not least, working together, I think, towards the healthcare system informing cancer patients about the link between alcohol and cancer. One and a half years ago, my uncle passed away from cancer and uh, he never got the information that both tobacco and alcohol he should stop using. So until his last days, he was smoking and having beer. And I mean, it just broke the heart of my mom, as everyone can imagine. And so there is so much to be gained also in informing patients. As Adriana said, people have a right to know about these things, that, that they are carcinogenic, and then they have a chance to protect themselves and I think, improve their uh, healing process. Mike, Adriana, thank you very much. It's been very, very interesting. Thank you, Adriana. Thank you, Kerry. This was uh, really fantastic. It was. It was really. And, and we feel reinforced because we see that we are not alone in this. So I think it's very interesting to have this chat. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Let's Talk Cancer. If you're interested in the barriers to accessing healthier lifestyles, I'd highly recommend listening to our previous episode on nutrition, physical activity and obesity. And if you want to hear more on the topic of alcohol, why not check out Mike's podcast, Alcohol Issues. As always, if you have questions, comments and suggestions, please get in touch with us at communications at uicc.org or send us a message on social media. And if you want to know when we've released a new episode, why not sign up to our newsletter through our website, uicc.org. 